turning for our scripture reading again to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? And from the words of my roaring. O my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee, and were delivered. They trusted in thee, and were not confounded. But I am a worm, and no man, a reproach of men, and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breasts. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. For there is none to help. Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet, I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them, and cast lots upon my vesture. But be not thou far from me, O Lord. O my strength, haste thee to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. Ye that fear the Lord, praise him. All ye the seed of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all ye the seed of Israel. For he hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, neither hath he hid his face from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard my praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek him. Your heart shall live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord. And all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's. And he is the governor among the nations. All they that be fat upon earth shall eat and worship. All they that go down to the dust shall bow before him. And none can keep alive his own soul. The seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born. That he hath done this. The Word of God that we consider tonight is verses 19 through 22. 
But be not thou far from me, O Lord. O my strength, haste thee to deliver, to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. I will declare thy name unto my brethren, and in the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, once again, we consider the silent crosswords of Jesus, those words and comments that Jesus made not out loud and that are recorded in the gospel, but those that he spake long ago, even before his death, and that give us a glimpse as to what he was thinking and referring to and even praying in his soul while he was suffering on the cross. These particular words of this psalm are a prayer and are a prayer to God for salvation and for deliverance. That's evident from the very opening words, Be not thou far from me, O Lord. This is not a new prayer. It's not as if Jesus here is praying for the first time. The entire psalm is a prayer. Even though it opens with those chilling words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Those words are addressed to God and are the opening words of a prayer to God. The kind of prayer that someone makes while in the midst of distress. But now he makes a very specific request. Save me. Deliver my soul from the sword. Deliver my darling from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth. Hear me from the horns of the unicorn. That's a prayer for deliverance, a prayer for salvation, which all by itself is mysterious and leads us right into the mystery of the cross itself. For this is Jesus. This is the one named Jehovah. The one who is named Jehovah Salvation. And yet he prays to Jehovah. And prays for salvation. Again, he who is the Savior, whose name is Savior, whose work is salvation, is found on the cross praying for salvation. He prays for salvation from beasts, from a sword, from dogs, from unicorns, from the lion's mouth. And He, He is the Creator. He is the one who fashioned and formed the metal that makes the sword. He is the one who called into being the lion and its fangs, the dog and its claws, the unicorn and its horn. Part of the explanation and the solving of this mystery is that Jesus is making this prayer within and with respect to his human nature. Jesus is praying as a man. And that's how we must see him. That's where this psalm brings us. It forces us 
to deal with the one on the cross as God in our flesh. But the emphasis is upon that flesh. That indeed there on the cross is a man. A man suffering on our behalf. And when we look at that man, even though he is God, we see that he is a man of prayer. Oh, how often he prayed in his ministry. So, here at death, there on the cross, he is busy praying. That shows how truly human he was. We may not look at the Savior and say, well, he was God. He needed no prayer. He was above prayer. Certainly, being perfect and sinless, there were no temptations, no troubles, nothing for which he needed to pray. Sometimes people even speak foolishly that way with regard to Christians. Why, we're Christians. God knows what we need. God supplies everything we need. What does God need us to pray for? Well, Jesus prayed. And we find Him there on the cross, praying. And if Jesus prayed, how much more us? We who are not God, we who are perfect, but even damn-worthy sinners, how much more shouldn't we be found in prayer? The passage also indicates there's real blessing and hope for us in our time of need, even as there was great blessing and hope for our Lord Jesus Christ. And our hope and blessedness is found briefly in this. If our Lord, if Jehovah God, the one who abandoned his son, so that he cried out, Why hast thou forsaken me? Listened to and heard the prayer of that son to save him and be near unto him. And he was the one who bore all our sins, how much more than us whose sins he bore. Consider with me this evening this passage from the Word of God under the theme, Save Me from the Beasts. The silent crossword, Save Me from the Beasts. And we notice in the first place that request, the prayer itself, then the means, how Jesus expected God to save him from the beast, and then his hope, his hope in God. The prayer that's made in the passage comes in a bunch of different forms, but we're going to break it out. There's a prayer, Be not far thou far from me, O Lord, O my strength, haste thee to help me. Notice the word, haste quickly, help me, and then deliver my soul from the sword, my darling. The idea is deliver my darling from the power of the dog and save me from the lion's mouth. If you look, the words deliver and help and save all go together. This is a prayer of Jesus for salvation. In fact, it is a prayer for personal salvation, for God to personally deliver and save him. This prayer follows his awareness of death. We considered last week the petition, really, and the acknowledgement of Jesus that he is being poured out like water. And we notice that that acknowledgement of Jesus was an acknowledgement that his death was both imminent and certain. 
So far, Jesus has acknowledged here in these words, first of all, that he is a worm, speaking about his state, his status before God, how he is considered before God and also before men, not a man, but as a worm. And he is considered that because of the sins that he bears. He speaks about his state of humiliation. Then Jesus expresses his condition. He talks about his condition, which is not simply one of pain and suffering, but death, imminent death, certain death. And now arising out of that, he prays, deliver me, save me. Jesus, however, is not praying what we would pray. Jesus is not praying to God for the kind of deliverance that we would pray for. Again, Jesus showing why there is only one Christ and why none of us could have suffered for even one of our own sins. When Jesus is praying, deliver my soul, deliver my darling, save me, make no mistake, he's praying about his own personal deliverance. He's not praying about our deliverance as such, but himself. Look at me, O God. Remember me, who is here hanging from this cross, hung by these nails, who's being poured out like water. But he's not praying for deliverance from death. Not as such. That's what we pray for. If we were there on the cross, suffering and dying, number one, we would be there because we deserved it. But even if we didn't deserve it, what we would be praying for is put life back into my body. If we would pray, deliver me, save me, remember me, we would be praying, take me down off this cross, get me out of here. Let me stand again upon the earth as a living, breathing human being. Don't let me die. But that's not what he's praying for. Notice the specific reference to my soul. Specifically, Although he's praying about me and the salvation of me and the deliverance of him, his focus is upon his soul. Deliver my soul. And that's the reference to to my darling. My darling is a reference to his soul. That explains how he expects God to deliver his person. There's a connection between Jesus' person and his soul. He expects God to save him and deliver him by delivering his soul. Now, why is that important? Because Jesus is conscious of something that we are not conscious of, and especially when we are suffering in the body. You see, the one who hangs there on the cross, as to his divine nature, is the Creator. He knows very well how man is composed and of what man consists. He is well aware that man is not only body, but man is soul, and very aware that the soul is the heart and the center of a man, that the soul truly determines the health and the wealth and the well-being of the individual person. We don't think that way. Now, it is worth pointing out, before we even move on, what Jesus' own anthropology is. You all know that there is in the Bible the study of anthropology, that there are scientists who claim to be anthropologists. 
And in their anthropology, the study of man, they have their own views on the origin of man. And out of the views of the origin of man, they have their views on the composition of man. And as you all know, man who believes not in God, man who rejects God, even man who claims to believe in a God, nevertheless rejects God as the Creator. He does so when he says man and his composition comes from evolution. That man fundamentally is material. That man at his heart and core is simply matter. Matter that developed from one form to another form to another form over a long, long period of time until you have this matter uh, so composed and so organized that you have a human being. Fundamentally, man is dirt. There's a correlation there. But where it ends, beside the fact that there is a vast difference between God creating man out of dirt in one day versus billions of years, there is this little fact that is ignored and overlooked. And that is, man is also a living soul. Now what's interesting about man is he wants to make everything come down matter, which is why man believes that all the problems of the soul, all the issues of the soul, and the salvation of the soul is all connected with matter, material things. If you simply take this drug, or you take this oil, or you eat this, or you do that, we will cure and fix and save your soul. And I don't care now whether the notion comes from science or it comes from quackery. It doesn't really matter. There are those who think that they can save the soul and it's saved only by science and what science says. And there are some who reject that. They don't trust institutions. They don't trust doctors. They don't trust studies. So they come up with all sorts of quackery. But it really doesn't matter, the fundamental problem is that man always thinks that he is saved by what happens to his body and by doing material things to the body and with regard to the body. And this is explains why man prays when he does and what he does. Of course, there are those who never pray, who are unconcerned about prayer. There are others who recognize some sort of spiritual world. Interesting that man, who wants to say a human being is composed only of matter, does struggle with spiritual notions like love. Is love and mercy and compassion and care these spiritual attributes or virtues, are they really only the result of chemicals and electrons and other things that are going on in our brain? Is that all they are? And people are uncomfortable with that. They may have a spiritual side to them and even engage in prayer, and we too. But you will notice something about prayers, and even our own prayers. Oftentimes we have little concern about the soul. We gauge our well-being by what's going on to our body. If there's pain and trouble, then we pray. And our prayers are mainly about our pain and our trouble in the body. When we pray for deliverance and we want salvation, we want deliverance and salvation of the body. That's our main concern. And how foolish. There we show ourselves really no different than the world. That's not Jesus. Jesus knows not only that we are also soul. And notice that, please. Whereas we identify ourselves with the body, 
This is who I am, and that's proper and right. We are our body. That's who we are. Notice the fundamental identification of Jesus to his soul. Save me, save my soul. This explains Jesus' attitude during his ministry. That even when Jesus was busy healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, and opening the ears of the deaf, and making the lame to walk and to run about, healing the lepers, and even raising people from the dead. His concern, and therefore the salvation that he brings, was fundamentally, and is always fundamentally, about the soul. He showed that in many, many ways. When he comes, he asks the question, What is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? You see the emphasis there? You remember the parable of the rich fool? That was about the soul versus the body. You remember the story? The man who had so much that he planned on building bigger barns. He was going to relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And the word comes, thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? Jesus has that same concern for himself. He's conscious of this. This isn't the first time this makes itself known. If you go to the garden and you see him in the garden, he's praying this. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Notice again the connection to his prayer for salvation and his soul. What's going on here? Jesus recognizes the fundamental welfare of a human being rests upon his soul, where his soul is at, and what the soul is being threatened by. Threaten the soul, and you threaten the individual. But you can kill the body, but if the soul is fine, you haven't touched that individual. And now you understand why he calls the soul what he does, my darling. When he says, deliver my soul from the sword, my darling, he's talking about the same thing. Literally, in the original, it's my one and only, my one and only, my precious, rightly translated, my darling. You see, Jesus has a consciousness of his soul that we lack. If I ask you how you're doing, you will say, fine, as long as you're in good health and have plenty of food, even though your soul is in mortal danger because you're busy filling your soul with all kinds of poison and evil things, the entertainment and the wickedness of the world. Your soul may be completely embroiled in sinfulness and temptation, and you will tell me, I'm doing fine. Christ would say, thou fool, thou fool. And conversely, what we see here is that even though one may be nigh to death, if the soul is preserved, the person is preserved. And that's why he calls it my one and only, my darling. Do you see your soul that way? Oh yes, there's a certain uniqueness to our body. There's something individual and unique about 
the body of each one of us. God made us unique creatures. And there's a reflection of that. How even though when we're closely related, there are differences even within a family. But they aren't the most unique thing about us. In fact, there are human beings that have identical bodies. But will always differentiate even someone with an identical body is their soul. Each person is unique. There is only one you and there is only one me because there is only one soul of you and one soul of me. And thus there is only one Christ and one human soul of Christ. And he's concerned about that soul. And he's concerned about the salvation and the deliverance of that soul. It's precious. You see that too. Remember what his last words were on the cross? The words spoken out loud. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, my soul. Remember what God said about him? This is my beloved Son in whom my soul is well pleased. Yes, I know elsewhere it says in whom I am well pleased. But it also says in whom my soul is well pleased. There is where your person is located. There is where your concern ought to be. And there when Jesus is concerned about our deliverance and his own deliverance, his concern is for the soul. That's a remarkable reference because what Jesus wants his soul to be delivered from are all physical things. Notice Jesus does not say, deliver my soul from spiritual danger. Certainly that's in mind as we're going to see. But he doesn't say, save my soul from Satan, save my soul from other threats that are of a spiritual nature, but save my soul from a sword, from dogs, from the lion's mouth, and the horns of the unicorns. You may take them all together. I know they're all different, but you have to see what Jesus is talking about here. The sword, you see, represents human beings. Sinful human beings who are at always war, who are murderers at heart, and who are arrayed around him with a sword to kill him. When he refers to dogs and then the lion's mouth and the horns of the unicorn, Jesus is referring to other living creatures that God has made Dogs, again, don't think of cute and cuddly. Pets, nice creatures, but mongrels closer to wolves. Ravenous beasts who want to tear and to shred. The lion's mouth, the king of all the beasts. The top predator, the meat eater the fearless beast, and the unicorn. What is the unicorn? I have no idea. Except in Scripture, the unicorn is described as an untamable brute of a beast. It is a huge, large creature that is useless for plowing because he doesn't listen to men. He cannot be tamed. Often translated a wild ox. Some have said it's a rhinoceros. Regardless, it's a creature who is a beast in the creation. One that might appear even like the bulls of Bashan to be domesticated, but is not able to be domesticated. What do they represent? What does Jesus see? What is he talking about? Four different enemies and threats to his soul? No. Here he sees the whole creation 
arrayed against him. That's what he sees. Earlier, Jesus had talked about it, and we spoke about it. How they are arrayed, strong bulls of Bashan, perhaps the very same unicorns that he's referring to later. And they gape upon him with mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. But Jesus, it's interesting, by his reference to men as a sword, sees something different. Jesus sees here that not only are all human beings arrayed against him, but the entire creation is against him. Again, that's remarkable because he's the creator. You can understand why perhaps men would be arrayed against him. Man who is a rational, moral creature, but who has fallen, fallen into hatred of God is prone to hate God and his neighbor at all times, blind and dead in his sin. You can see why he might be arrayed against the Christ, but the creation joins in. We forget about that. That the creation right now is at war. When Jesus, when God destroyed the first creation, he did it not simply because man was violent, but the whole creation was violent. And here you have these beasts. They're not rational, moral creatures. They are without a soul. They have no soulish connection to God. No religious, moral obligations to God. They're simply beasts. And even they are against the Christ. That's what he sees. The creation turned against its creator. And of course you know what's behind that. He sees the king of beasts himself, Satan. That glorious, wonderful, brute beast. Intelligent beyond our imagination. Endowed with powers that you and I simply, entirely underestimate. He sees these as agents of Satan. So what does that have to do with his soul? Because Jesus is aware of something as a human being, which is our soul is threatened when our body is threatened. Don't forget this is the sympathetic Savior. This is the Savior who knows who man is, but knows man is a creature of the earth earthy. And when it comes to priorities, man places the priority upon his body, and that is right where Satan attacks. And our Lord Jesus recognizes it. You don't see him there on the cross saying, well, I'm safe, I'm good, everything's fine, no need to pray unto my Father, no need to go to God in prayer. I know they can kill the body, but my soul is just fine. No, he recognizes something, which is that Satan tries to attack the soul and destroy the soul by attacking the body. He always does. Jesus knew that from the minute he entered his ministry and was first tempted to fill the hunger pains in his belly with a miracle that was unauthorized. And now Satan is back, tearing at his body, causing him suffering and pain that is indescribable, hellish agonies. And he sees the whole creation turned on his body in order to attack and get at his soul. And there is why he prays. You see, when Jesus said what he said, Fear not them which are able to kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. He was not saying, Have no fear about the death of the soul. Be unconcerned about the soul. Your soul is just fine, all by itself, and in your own strength. The exact opposite. Realize that pain and affliction 
and trouble of the body, and especially the death of the body, is a great threat to the soul. You realize that, do you not? The greatest threat to your soul is the death of your body. And that will be when you can expect Satan to attack with full fury and force. And so Jesus prays, save my soul, save my darling. Now, how did he expect God to save him? Well, in the first place, as I said before, he did not expect God to save him and save his soul by taking him from the cross. And that must be our expectation, too, if we ever find ourselves in a similar situation. Of course, nothing near what Christ is experiencing, but we are learning lessons here. Our prayers, even concerning the body, must be about our soul. And when we expect God to deliver and save us, this is usually the way that we must expect it. God doesn't promise to deliver our bodies. In fact, he reminds us time and time again, you shall die. Oh, you don't need to die as punishment for sin any longer, but you shall die. He expects God to deliver his soul by being near to him. That's why he starts out the way he does. But be not thou far from me, O Lord. He's showing there how he expects God to save him and deliver him. In other words, he expects God to save him and delivering him, deliver him by living with him, by being near to him in the very soul that is being threatened. And he expresses that. In, in fact, What's amazing here is right here is where Christ connects some thoughts that he brought out earlier. Christ did speak about the fact that God had abandoned him. But he recognizes that the God who had forsaken him was the God who had always been with him. And in fact had been with him in his mother's womb. Thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Now that's amazing theology there, by the way. It's a good question whether a child is even conscious of that. I doubt it. But if come to of age, every child of God recognizes that God was with them from the moment they came into existence with the gift of their person, with the gift of their unique person. Notice, thou art he that took me, not just my body, but took me out of the womb and didst make me hope. Where do we hope? We hope in our soul. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Cast upon means you made me to trust in thee. Just like a child is cast upon his mother when born. There's a bond that forms there. It's really amazing. There's a reason why they take children and place them right on their mother at birth. Jesus uses that as an illusion, as just a picture to what God does to a child who belongs to him at birth. You made me trust in thee. Even when I was on my mother's breasts, taking in the milk that I need to sustain my body, and don't forget, he did that. There on his mother's breasts, Sustaining his body that way. He was with God in his soul and in his heart. And so that's how he expects God also to deliver him, to be with him. How God will save him from the horns of the unicorns and from the mouth of the lion and from the teeth of the dog and from the cut of the sword. Simply be with me. Be near me. Live with me. Sustain me. And now keep in mind his work on the cross. 
Jesus knows and understands two things. Number one, he must be sustained on the cross. He must complete his work. He must die. And his soul must be preserved. It may not be lost. He may not enter into bitterness. He may not enter into despair. He may not stop loving his God. He may not stop trusting in him. He may not violate the first commandment. Remember the first commandment this morning? Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Soulish activities. Worshiping, loving, trusting, and hoping in God. And he may give an inch, but he must die. And that's why he prays that God be near him, sustain him, keep him loving God. Notice again, Christ prays this. If you imagine, beloved, for a second, that you can trust in God and love in God for even a second on your own and by your own strength, guess again. This is God. This is God in human nature. And this is God in His human nature praying for the sustaining and the salvation and the deliverance of His soul by being near to Him. That's how all salvation occurs. How does God deliver us? Beloved, does God swoop in and save your body? Is that where he starts? Is that where salvation starts? Is that where it begins? God comes in and radically changes our body so that everything's fine in the body. Does he come along and preserve us from all sickness and disease and trouble and crying and tears? No. He enters our soul. He implants himself into our heart, deep, deep into our soul. And guess what? When he does that, he delivers us. Oh, the body may be racked with pain and all kinds of things may happen to the body, but we ourselves are delivered. And Jesus understands that and that's why he even prays this. And he's praying too that God sustain him in the grave. Oh. It's not over there on the cross as such. Having died on the cross, his body will go into the grave. And there too, his soul is his concern. God must preserve his soul and keep his soul there in the grave so that he may come out on the third day. Thus we have this. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, Neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. That's from the Psalms. It's quoted later on in Acts as an explanation for the resurrection. The amazing, amazing thing being taught here. What we call the union of the two natures in the one person of Christ. Mysterious, mysterious, mysterious. That so closely are the two natures united. Oh, they're different. They're separate. If you think the human and divine merge so that one becomes the other, or one stops being human and becomes divine, or the divine becomes human, that's heresy. That's wrong. The church has rejected that. And proof is right here. Jesus in his human nature praying for the salvation of his human soul even though he's divine. And yet they are united, so united that his soul is sustained not only here on the cross, but preserved there in the grave. Even his body won't see corruption. So what's his hope? We're going to talk about that on Friday some more the hope of Jesus, the hope for the future. Right now I want to limit it to what he says about God. Now I included verse 22, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. That shows hope for the future. But I'm talking now 
what is his hope? What is the certainty of the granting of his request? Is it even for Jesus, the fact that he prayed? Does Jesus place his faith in his prayer? Does Jesus even appeal to who he is? Well, I'm the son. Of course God will deliver me. I'm, I'm his son. Interesting is Jesus is conscious of that, and that's why he asks, why hast thou forsaken me? No, there's a lesson to be learned here too. His hope is in who God is. His hope is in Jehovah, who the Lord himself, whom he addresses, is. It's in the nature and character of God, namely that God has promised, that God is faithful, even even though he's been abandoned, he knows he has not been forsaken because of who God is. God is faithful. God will hear him. God is his strength. Verse 19, Be not now far from me, O Lord. O my strength! All of his strength, everything that he has, is from God. And God is even quick to hear him. Why? Because even though he may not be aware of it, he knows God is near. God is in his very own soul and in his heart. That's his trust. That's his hope. His hope and trust is that he is the object of God's favor. That God will deal kindly with him and remember him. Now for Jesus... That's because he's perfect. God must deal with him in that way exactly because he is righteous by his own works. That is where he is so different from us. God is a righteous God. And as long as Jesus is righteous and lives righteously before God, God must deal righteously with him and he knows it. That's not the case for us. We lost that. We lost that long ago. God must deal kindly with us because of Christ, because of His grace, because we belong to Him whom He Himself sustained and saved. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, O Lord, Deliver us, deliver our souls. Our souls which aren't even threatened anywhere near to what Jesus was threatened because he bore our sins and iniquities. Our souls are threatened simply because we are sinners ourselves. But deliver our souls, be near unto us, preserve us and keep us against every threat. And teach us, Lord, to come unto thee who art such a Savior that thou thyself in Christ did pray such things. And be near unto us. In Jesus' name, amen.